in honor of Forensic Nurses Week, as well as today, November 13th, which is Forensic Nurses Day, we have a special guest to discuss her work as a forensic nurse, Lisa Nguyen. Hi. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Yeah, how about you? I'm doing well. Nice to meet you. Me as well. Share with the listeners uh, your credentials and a little bit about your background. Sure. So um, I'm Lisa. I've been a nurse for five years now. Two and a half of those years I spent um, working as a forensic nurse or sexual assault nurse examiner. Um, depends on depend where you go in the country. They kind of interchange those two terminologies. Um, it's really the same term for the same role that we do. Um, basically, a forensic nurse, um, kind of just to give a definition, is... Um, it's basically a nurse that takes, that sees patients, take care of patients that have been um, victims of crime. So it includes, uh, you know, sexual assault, um, intimate partner violence, domestic violence, elder abuse, child abuse. Um, usually when we think of the forensic nurse, that is kind of like the role that they encompass in the patient population that they see, that we see. But um, some, some people also consider nurses that work in correctional facilities as forensic nurses as well. Some people consider legal nurse consultants to be forensic nurses as well. And there is a small group of forensic nurses that work, at, that work as death investigators too. That's a very small niche. Um, so basically what the training involves is you have to be a nurse first so after you go to nursing school however you get your nursing degree whether it's an adn bsn or entry-level masters um, most forensic nursing programs they do require um they do require their nurses before they get hired into the program to have some sort of background like some sort of background as a nurse first so usually it's one or two years of nurse, bedside nursing experience before you get hired into or trained as a forensic nurse because the thing is the role is very independent um you know once your training wheels are off you're in that you're in your patient's room by yourself it's a very independent role and so your assessment skills has has to be on par and you obviously have to have some sort of um, level of resourcefulness and usually you don't really get that until you have some sort of like like nursing uh, in, like experience under your feet so the thing about a lot of like forensic nursing programs in the country is that they a lot of them will hire you without any like forensic nursing experience just because it's a very specialized niche and on top of that, the lifespan of a forensic nurse is about two years. And when I say lifespan, it, it, it's, it's a high turnover rate because of the vicarious trauma that we go through as a, as a senior nurse. Um, and so at least that was what like the, my mentor that, that was what I've learned from my mentor and from a lot of people that I've trained underneath is that the lifespan of a senior nurse is relatively, um, young and well small because we don't stay and unfortunately I'm not a lot of people stay in that role for a long time 
So, um, so basically most forensic nursing programs will hire you without any type of forensic nursing experience. They will train you kind of within the role. It's like, it's kind of like on the job training. Um, and the training is usually through, unless in America, the training is through the International um, Association for Forensic Nurses, the IAFN. So you do, I think about 300 hours of didactic training. If it's adult, it's 300 hours of didactic training plus 16 hours of clinicals. And then you kind of go off and see adult patients. There is a separate training for pediatrics as well too. So I'm trained in, to see both adult, adolescents, and pediatrics. Um, so those are two separate trainings. So I think for pediatric, it's also about like, oh, maybe 40 hours of didactic. I don't remember. It's, it's been a while. So, so yeah, they both have their own separate didactic trainings. Both have their own separate clinical trainings as well, too. So I, I kind of like a side, kind of like a side background. I work as a SANE nurse um, out in Cleveland, Ohio. So um, I worked for two of, two of the biggest like hospital, academic hospital systems out there. Um, and both, both programs were kind of different from each other in terms of like the patient population that we saw. So one hospital saw just mainly sexual assault, um, like patients that go in to, um, to request a safe kit. The other hospital saw the whole gamut. So domestic violence, intimate partner violence, elder abuse, child abuse, that as well too. That was, a, that was kind of like an interesting experience per se to, um, to see kind of like two different patient populations from two different hospital systems. Most SANE nurses, it's an on-call job. So you get a call usually from the local emergency department say, and they'll tell them that, you know, there's a patient that came, that's, that came in, they want to request, usually they want to request a safe kit. And then you kind of go in and see the patients. Now, now it, it, it kind of, like I say, it, it also depends on like what kind of program you work for too. Cause I kind of mentioned like not every program sees all, all patients throughout the, the spectrum of um, trauma and violence. So basically they'll page you and you'll get um, some, you know, they'll tell you whether it's a patient that wants to request a safe kit. Um, and if it's not a safe kit, they'll tell you like what it is. They'll tell you like um, if it's, if it's like an intimate partner violence or domestic violence or ch child abuse or elder abuse, then those usually incorporate like forensic photographies. What my practice is, and I kind of have two separate practice when it comes to, safe kits and when it comes to um when it comes to like physical violence or physical neglect and abuse that you can see and images needs to be documented i have i kind of have two separate practice so when it comes to um so for safe kits so you'll get a call and say that um you know a patient is requesting a safe kit usually the first question i ask is do are they thinking about reporting this to the police? And it's an, and if the emergency room doesn't want to ask that question, I don't mind going in and ask that question, but that's something that I ask off the top because some people are not ready to talk to the police. Some people are not ready to talk to law enforcement. And I, um, 
I kind of want to make them aware that once that once we're done, uh, once I do whatever I have to do in the emergency room, that I do call law enforcement to pick up the kit. And usually when that happens, they will either, law enforcement will typically want to take some sort of like report um, from, from the patient. And so I always like to kind of get that off the bat because like I say, not every patient um, is ready to speak to law enforcement. If they're not, there is always something called um, like a Jane Doe kit or a, um, an anonymous kit. And those can be done too. But the problem is I, in my experience, I've run into kind of like roadblocks with law enforcement when it comes to pick out those kits because it's like, well, we can't trace this back. They're like, well, we can't trace this back to anyone. I'm like, well, that's kind of the point. But they're like, it's kind of our policy to have a report connected with the kid as well. So I kind of see where they're coming from, but it's, um, you know, it is kind of like, you know, from law enforcement and though, sometimes you do kind of run to those type of roadblocks. So um, anyways, that's always something that I, that I always like to tell my patients as well. Um, I also, usually we also do a consent to with the hospital. So, you know, with any type of like, any type of patient, when they come into the emergency room, we always do some sort of consent with, um, with the patient. It's, it's a consent to treat, but I always tell my patient this, that, you know, the consent to treat is just something that every hospital does to protect the hospital, but it's not set in stone for you. And I always tell my patients, especially those that are um, trying to get a safe kit, is that if even if you do sign our consent form, it's not set in stone. So let's say that you change your mind in the middle of our, you know, in the middle of our um, our time together and you don't want a kit done or, you know, you decide you don't want to, you know, like talk to the police anymore, you don't want to file a report anymore, you don't want to get a kit done, you don't have to. Like it's not, it's not set in stone. And I always tell my patients that, you know, they are, they're sailing this ship like they are the captain of this ship you you tell me what you need I these are the services that, that our program and our um, hospital offer to you in this situation but you know you tell us what you need um, the thing is that it can be very traumatic especially for someone who's just got raped it can be very very traumatic and I like to be as as transparent as possible what it, what it entails. How in a sense is that, you know, part of the safe kit assessment um, includes a speculum exam. So granted as women, we, I mean, like it's part of our like well women's like, um, you know, health visit, like we get a speculum, we get a pap smear every like what, every like two years or so. But the thing is like, or whatever, but like the thing is, um, you know, a lot of the one, especially a lot of the women or that I've seen, especially younger women, let's say like they're 21 years old and they've never had a pap smear before, but they want to come in and they get a, um, they want to get a safe kid. I usually just ask them right off the bat, have you had a pap smear before? If they haven't, I usually bypass a speculum exam. This is my practice because um, I don't want them to associate, you know, having a speculum exam which is something every woman goes through at least once in their life 
and it's a very normal part of, you know, like a well woman's visit. I don't want them to associate kind of that, you know, that part to the traumatic event that they just went through. I usually, like I said, I usually give them a choice, but sometimes if they can't make a choice, I will go, I won't do it for you. And we'll just do like a blind swab in the vaginal area. So, um, so yeah, so usually a safe kit after we go through consent, um, it's basically, um, it's basically a bunch of swabs and you swab different parts of, uh, the, the patient's body. Um, some nurses, they use everything. Some nurses, we, we don't. And that just kind of depends on, um, what the narrative is. So if my patient's narrative, um, states that her assailant, uh, like, um, touched her or kissed her in certain areas, that's where I'll go. And if she didn't mention a certain body part, I don't go there. <laughs> so really kind of like for their own, kind of, you know, kind of for their own comfort and privacy as well too. Cause like I say, it, it's, it's actually a very invasive, it can be a very invasive procedure. What made you decide to become a, a sane nurse? Did, did you, when you became a nurse in general, did you always have the thought that you were going to progress into forensic nursing or was this something that came after? Yeah. So I've heard, you know, I've always heard when I was in nursing school, I've heard about being a sane nurse. Um, I've, I've heard about it. I thought it was cool. I didn't really think that I was going to be a part of it. And actually, I didn't really pursue forensic nursing or sane nursing until the Me Too movement. And it, it was actually it was actually during the Me Too movement and the rise of like the Women's March that I I told myself like you know I really want to utilize my professional platform to to be a better patient advocate for um, for the people around me. And that was how I that was how I got into SANE. And it was really like, it was kind of through luck. It just so happened that one of my colleagues um, heard that it was something that I was interested in. She was like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm doing that with one of the local hospitals here in the Cleveland area. Um, if you want, you know, I can like, and I can introduce you to our coordinator. And long story short, that was how I got started. Um, so yeah, that was, and I, I've always said this to pretty much like all of my colleagues in the medical field that I feel like um, being a forensic nurse, being a sexual assault nurse examiner was the one time that I truly felt like a patient advocate um, for my own patients. And the reason why is because, like I say, like it's a very independent role. And, you know, I'm not trying to like criticize my colleagues, but usually like you run into some, you know, providers in the emergency room once they see that this patient is um, is seeking a safe kit or they've just got raped. In their head, it's like, oh, call the sane nurse; they'll do everything, <laughs> like everything. And it's almost and 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 that mentality. It's almost like they are very nervous to kind of go into the room and do what they need to do, and kind of rely on you to kind of do you know their job as well and I get it it can be very um 
it can be very um, uncomfortable for people who aren't trained in it. But the issue, the issue that I have is that a lot of medical education, even nursing education as well, they're not based on trauma-informed care. And I never heard about trauma-informed care until I became a nurse, or I'm sorry, until I became a sane nurse. And, you know, once you develop your practice against trauma-informed care, you know, um, you start to kind of develop this new fount of compassion that you thought you had before, but you never did. You know, I definitely kind of, it definitely broke like boundaries kind of in me and my colleagues who've been introduced to trauma-informed care. And it definitely um, changed kind of the way we, you know, practice in terms of, um, you know, treating, not only like treating our patients, but also just like approaching their treatment plans and their care plans as well. That's amazing. And thank you for that. For, I mean, you know, we, we saw such an influx of, of everything that had to do with sexual assault uh, advocacy with the MeToo movement. Before that, you know, there was a little bit, but we didn't really hear about it much. And since the MeToo movement, it was just, it blew up and it really gave rise to, um, not only obviously survivors coming forward, but like you said, people in your situation who were like, I can use my skill set to, mm-hmm. to now move and progress this forward as well. So mm-hmm. I think that's such an incredible thing. Um, you know, I, it's just, it always amazes me when I hear stories like that, that it's something, you know, one thing kind of changed you mm-hmm. so significantly. Would you say it maybe made you a better nurse? You know, you did talk about the trauma-informed care, um, you know, learning how to how to approach those situations. Would you say that it's helped you be, be a more well-rounded nurse in general when you treat other patients as well? Absolutely. Um, like I say, I think being a, like I say, I think being a seeing nurse truly redefined what it meant to be a patient advocate. I think a lot of us kind of like to throw that term around, but sometimes, um, and I can tell you like being like a bedside nurse and I still function as a bedside nurse in the ICU still all these years and even more nowadays because of the pandemic. But, um, you know, I think, I, I definitely think it has um, because especially with, especially, you know, as an IC nurse, when you have patients that can't speak for themselves because they're intubated, you're their own voice. And you kind of have to have a complete different, different viewpoint. Not, it's not, it's not like what is more convenient for me as a nurse or what is more convenient for me, you know, in my job, but what's best for the patient. And, you know, if I was that patient laying in bed, or it was my family member that's laying in bed, what would I do? And how would I advocate differently? And, you know, I can say like sometimes as ICU nurses, we do get kind of numb with the job that we do because for, for the most part, our patients are sedated, they're intubated, they can't really talk to us. And so when you do your job, you kind of just go through the movement. But then when you start to, you know, and this is just me speaking from personal experience, but when you start to um, have, you know, a patient kind of talk, like speak back to you and tell them what their, um, their feelings are or what they really want and need. Or for me personally, when I start to take care of like 
the loved ones of a colleague or a friend or someone I knew, it's very different. Like, you know, like I say, your, your mindset all of a sudden changes from not kind of like for your own convenience, but for what's best and what's like the best quality of life for that patient moving forward as well too. Yeah, absolutely. So what would you say your favorite, it's such an odd question to answer your favorite part of being a SANE nurse, but what would you say you, you most look forward to when you can be interacting with a patient in that capacity? And what would you say is your, your least favorite part of it? Yeah. So, um, you know, my, my goal or I don't know if goal is the right word for it, but you know, my purpose in nursing has always been to take care of people when they are, when they are going through the worst moment of their life. And so ever since I was a baby nurse, I thought that was being the ICU and that was being critical care. And that was, you know, being with that kind of like glam show of like a bunch of physically sick patients. But I, you know, the older I've gotten, the more I've realized that, you know, a lot of trauma isn't just physical. It's also very emotional as well, too, even though on the outside, you look completely fine. And I realized, you know, the term worst moment of your life is very um, subjective. So for me, being a senior nurse was just a extension of that, but in a different, you know, in a different kind of like realm or it's, it's an extension of like being able to, I know, I, at least I know coming into, you know, a patient's room when I get called in um, for a case is that I know I'll make a difference in that person's life. And even if, you know, the hard, the hard thing about us, I would say the hard thing about it, this is that you can't really promise them what will happen afterwards in terms of like the legal aspects, in terms of whether or not they'll get justice to, um, to what, you know, what has happened to them. And I always, and I guess this is kind of where, and this is kind of like to answer the question now your other question, uh, what's like my least favorite part is, I had a senior nurse who trained me and said, you know, you don't, you don't go into this field because you're, you're here to seek justice for all your patients. The reality is they're not going to get justice. You know, I don't even know what the percentage is, but there's a very, very, very small percent. The unfortunate reality is that there are a very small percentage of the cases that you will see will, that will even go to court. And what you, the only thing that you can do for your patient right now in that moment is to empower them moving forward. And, you know, I guess my favorite thing is the pep talk. <laughs> um, because sometimes I find that pep talk is kind of helpful for both of us too. you know, um, that the journey ahead is going to be tough. But, you know, it's, it's the pet talk and the comfort that things um, will be better, even if the road is longer, that healing is, the healing for them is in the future. And just kind of for me, if I can instill that sense of hope in my patients when they leave the emergency room, no matter what ends up happening to their case, I think is rewarding because sometimes that's the best that you can do. So um, that would say that's my favorite thing. And my least favorite thing is I kind of mentioned kind of like, you know, um, seeing things not go 
in favor of your patient. But another thing, and I kind of mentioned this um, uh, previously, is the vicarious trauma that comes along with it too. So I know one thing, like a lot of a lot of same training, a lot of forensic nurses training, um, they do teach us to different ways and techniques to build resilience. Um, because you know, if obviously, you know, it's the vi the vicarious trauma and kind of like the lack of resilience is really what brings you know it's really the reason why I like the um, you know the lifespan of a forensic nurse is so um, young. Right. Yeah. And with that, how how do you personally cope with? you know, seeing very difficult traumatic cases. Um, you, like you said, you build up a resilience, but you know, it still affects you in, in some capacity. So how would you say you, you can de-stress from, from what you're encountering? Well, in the moment, I'm a stress eater. I mean, that's just like in the moment, that's how I typically like deal with stress, whether it's the ICU or like my same patient that I, you know, that I just saw. Um, that's what I do in the moment. But afterwards, I think it's afterwards that, you know, you kind of have to be careful. I've kind of developed personally, I've developed a spiritual practice, um, especially this year. I've developed a spiritual practice this year um, <laughs> because it's like, you have like two kind of gigs that it's just stressful no matter where you go. <laughs> So I've, I've definitely, so I've definitely developed like some sort of spiritual practice this year where I've gotten really, um, I've gotten really kind of close and devoted to my meditation and my yoga. I started um, kind of looking at different like healing modalities. I started looking into, I started kind of, this is just me personally, but I've started kind of like connecting more to my um my traditional kind of like my, tr my traditional background um whatever like beliefs that my family um followed um i kind of started looking more into that and i i don't know like looking more to spirituality i feel like they've always given me answers that i can't figure out for myself it just kind of keeps you humble and it kind of gives you you know there's something in, in buddhism there's something called like impermanence which is like you know not everything is going to stay the same like not everything you know not everything is going to stay the same, whether it's good or bad. So, and also, you know, in Buddhist scriptures, we also talk about karma, which is like eventually, you know, whatever seed that you sow, whether it's good or bad, it's going to reap. Um, even if it does take a long time, eventually, you know, it will reap. So just having those like that kind of spiritual mindset at, can like keeps me kind of at ease too. And kind of just keeps me present in um, whatever's going on, whether it's my job or life. That's great. I think that's such good advice for anybody too. I mean, especially this year with the yeah. pandemic. I think yeah. so many people need to need yeah. to um, take on more of that kind of mindset. <laughs> yeah. For someone who has been sexually assaulted and is contemplating getting a safe kit performed mm -hmm. what would your advice be for them so one thing i kind of wanted to mention about that in particular is that um most forensic nursing program practices is that if you need a safe kit um to go get 
it done within it's not I believe it's 92 hours now of of the um, of the event and the reason why we say that is because the, within that time frame I just don't remember if it's 92 or 72 I'm, I think I'm getting mixed up between like peds and adults but um but within that time frame it's when we're most likely to pick up any any type of DNA evidence now granted I completely understand that sometimes that that 92 hour time frame is too soon to for someone to cope with it um not saying that they can't get any like sort of help afterwards but it may not do um you any good if you go over the 92 hours so that's just just being honest like most um, most people or most like forensic programs will probably not do a safe kit on someone um, post 92 hours like assault. Um, so if that is something that they want to do, like I said, it has to be within that time frame. My, uh, my recommendation is also to do research as well too in terms of um, if in their local area, if they have any um, hospitals that do have a SANE unit or a SANE program. And the reason why I said that is, it's not that emergency room nurses can't do it, but they're so busy. Um, you know, they may have up to 10 patients at once. They may have a trauma going on. And so, you know, emergency room nurses, they practice like based on like a triage kind of mindset where they treat the sickest people first. And usually um, patients that go in for a safe kit are relatively physically stable. If that ER doesn't have like a sane nurse, you may be there for hours just trying to get a kit done. There, there's a lot of like ERs are over or are understaffed, so um, they may not have the resources to um, give to give like uh, sexual assault victims kind of the the need or like the attention or you know that they need. So. Um, that's my, yeah, so that's my two recommendations. If you can try to get within 92 hours, do that. And also, if um, you can go find an emergency room that has the same, um, that has the same unit or same program where um, there's a nurse there that's designated to just do that and they can give you kind of the care and the needs that you want dedicated just for you and not have to worry about what else is going on in the ER as well. Thank you so much for being on and explaining what all of this is. Um, happy Forensic Nurses Week. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you so much. You're yeah. welcome, thank you, for, thank you for doing what you do. We, we absolutely. absolutely need more people like you in, in the healthcare field, so I appreciate you so much. Is there any social media or anything that you want to give to the listeners that if they want to, you know, if anybody's interested in becoming a forensic nurse or, you know, if anybody wants to reach out to you? Sure. Um, so if you're interested in becoming a forensic nurse, um, go to the IAFN website. So IAFN stands for International Association for Forensic Nurses. Um, that's where every forensic nurse across the country does our training. Like we do our training through, um, through that particular association. Um, and they have all the information that's needed. Um, so Perfect. I would say that's the 
probably the first um, the first place to start. If anybody wants to get in contact with me, I mean, I guess they can contact me through um, Instagram. Um, Fencer Nurse uh, is my hashtag or my one of my hashtag my my handle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's my handle. So if anyone wants to, I've I've had quite a few people like kind of like um, come up to me and ask me kind of how to you know how to start their career in forensic nursing. I mean, and I will say this. I will say there are also like forensic nurses, per, forensic nursing program out there that are MSN, like Masters of Science in Nursing, that people can that people can go through that route if they want to. Personally, this is just my personal opinion because I'm a cheapitarian. I I don't think that's a like a economically like effective way just because you know you can get your training through the IFFN for like a small percentage of what you'll pay for your MSN, still get the same training and still perform kind of the same role. The only time, however, if if you feel like you want to do something more, like you want to become like a program director of a forensic nursing program, then sure go through the MSN like forensic like nursing programs, but it's usually, it's, it's not like my, it's really not my first go-to if you want to get your foot into the door. Right. Yeah. Great. Thank you so, so much.